listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Um, If you haven't had the chance to hear from me yet, or if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Andrew McClure. I'm the lead church planning pastor of the new church, Community Bible Church in Richmond Hill. Woo! Yeah, that's... That's your cue. Yeah, so we're, we are just a couple of months from officially launching, which is both terrifying and incredibly exciting. Um, so keep praying for us. Uh, at the end of our time today, I actually plan to give a little bit of an announcement and an update for you about our efforts there. Um, but let's, let's jump into Matthew chapter 10 today. Um, I'll say this first. About eight to 10 years ago, I became pretty obsessed with reading listening to anything and everything that has to do with the 26th president of the United States of America. Anybody? Brownie points? No? Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, so I was reading everything I could on Teddy Roosevelt, his speeches, um, you know, his, his, his life. I mean, it was just such a larger-than-life figure, really inspiring some of the physical feats he had. But he gave a speech before he became president as governor of New York in 1899 Uh, titled The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life. He had the foresight as governor to see that um, the American people at that time, late 19th century, were growing uh, complacent, uh, lethargic, maybe even apathetic, because they had just kind of ridden on the backs of the Industrial Revolution. For the first 100 years, Teddy Roosevelt had seen that as as a nation, America had strived, worked, built a wealthy, pretty successful nation. But now there's this new generation um, who were enjoying, once again, those fruits of the labor, but, but probably forgetting the purpose and the satisfaction that comes from the strenuous life, from hard work. And I wanna open up Matthew chapter 10 with us um, this morning by just reading the way he opened up that speech in 1899. He said, I wish to preach, not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife, to preach that highest form of success which comes, not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil, or who out of these wins the splendid and ultimate triumph. Church, I believe that we, much like the American people of the late 19th century, um, have forgotten the doctrine of the strenuous life. Maybe we have been tempted to lean into the doctrine of ignoble ease. Maybe we've forgotten that the plethora of options regarding churches on every street corner um, or the blessings of our religious liberties or uh, the surplus of Christian literature and books and conferences and music and all the things that we use to, 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 to grow in our faith. Maybe we have forgotten that those things, all of those things are actually intended to equip us, right, as Ephesians 4 says, for the work of ministry, for the strenuous life, but I fear that instead we've used these things to, just as the American people of the late 19th century, we, we've used them to grow complacent, apathetic, lethargic, and instead in engaging in a life of ignoble ease. Here's the point for today. I'm just gonna go ahead and lay it out there and I'm gonna talk about it for a long time. We're called to the strenuous life as Christians, not the life of ignoble ease. We're to be called to live as sent ones, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, as ambassadors, witnesses, co-laborers. It's the call of Abraham. God said, I'll bless you, Abraham, so that you may become a blessing. 
We are blessed so that we can engage in the strenuous life and becoming a blessing to others. We are called to that strenuous life. So as we look at our passage today, it's Matthew chapter five, all the, I mean, chapter 10, verse five, all the way to the end of the chapter. There's three specific facets I want us to look at regarding the strenuous life. The first is the call to the strenuous life. So we're going to spend a majority of our time because we cannot face the consequences, point number two, of the strenuous life. I'm giving you the outline in advance, right? So we can walk through this. The consequence, we can't engage those consequences unless we're fully convinced that we, that you are called to the strenuous life. So we're gonna spend a majority of our time there in point one. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read verse five together. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your word. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that, that town. The call to the strenuous life. What we heard last week from Matthew chapter nine was Jesus said that what motivates us in the missions was compassion. If you look at the end of chapter nine, it says when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he told his disciples, his followers, us, to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers, right? And then the beginning of chapter 10 in verse one, it says, and he called to himself these 12, 12 apostles. And the point that Bill made last week is that we are those laborers, that that mission of Jesus calling to himself and sending people out is still our mission today. It's all of ours. And what I want us to see about the call to the strenuous life actually begins in verse one. It says he called to him his 12 disciples. The call of the strenuous life is first and foremost a call to a person. It's a call to Jesus. And he called to him, his 12 disciples. Now we don't know how long the disciples had been with Jesus up until this point. The best guess is probably just a few months. So before Jesus has sent these disciples out on mission for his namesake, they had been with him for a few months. They had heard the Sermon on the Mount. They had watched him heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. They had seen him calm the storm, right? They had been living in proximity and in relationship to Jesus. This is important for us because before we can engage the life of the strenuous life, we have to be in proximity to Jesus. The call is first and foremost a call to a person. John 15 is my favorite chapter in scripture. And in verse five, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to be abiding in Jesus before we engage the call to the strenuous life. It's a call to a person. Now in chapter 10, verse one, when Jesus calls them to himself, I mean, that's incredibly literal, right? He's saying, hey guys, come in close. The word is summon or huddle up. He has them near him, but he wants them to come in closer so he can give them these instructions to be sent out. So it's an incredible, literal, incredibly literal call, right? But it's not a stretch for us as we think about the call to the strenuous life 
to realize he didn't call them in a vacuum. He called them out of relationship to himself. So the call to a strenuous life begins with a call to him, walking in close proximity to a person, Jesus. So before we even really get into our passage today, the question is, are you walking in proximity with Jesus? Are you close enough to him to hear him call if he summons you? Are you cultivating a sensitivity to his voice by feasting on his word, right? Which he never contradicts when he speaks. Are you submitted to the head of the church, which is Jesus, by being submitted to the body of Christ, which is the church? And what I mean by that is, are, are you known? Are you here? Are you a member? Are you known by people in the church so they can look at you and go, man, I think God's doing something in your life. I'm gonna confirm and affirm that in the body of Christ. That's the pattern we see in the book of Acts when people join God in mission. The call to the strenuous life begins with a call to a person, relationship with Jesus. So often we are well aware of what Christ has saved us from, right? We, We hear this preached all the time, hell, sin, death, but we ignore the treasure troves of what he has saved us for. Oh, there is richness in a relationship to Jesus, in proximity to Jesus, in living out the call to the strenuous life. So the call to the strenuous life begins with a call to a person. Okay, I promise we will get through the end of this chapter. Starting in verse five, the call is also a call to a place. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They didn't have to guess. He told them exactly where to go. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if you're hearing that or reading that, the first question that popped in my mind is why? Why would Jesus send them to the people of Israel, not to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans? Why be so exclusive? Is Jesus just being bigoted here? Is he, is he just trying to exclude these people for a particular reason? And the answer is no. There's no racism involved here. There's no bigotry involved here. And I can say that with authority because later in this chapter, we'll actually see Jesus tell them to be witnesses among the Gentiles. Later in the book of Matthew, we're gonna see him give them a commission to go into all the world and make disciples of what? All nations, we're gonna see in Acts 1.8, he says, I'm gonna give you the spirit so you can be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're gonna see in the book of Revelation that this will ultimately come true, that peoples from all nations will be surrounding the throne of God. The scope of God's redemptive purposes is all peoples. But in this passage, it's a particular place. Don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go to the house of Israel. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? How do you discern the place that God has for you if you're called to the strenuous life? It's a pretty important question, isn't it? How do we know the place? Do do we just go buy a magic eight ball? You know, put up a map on the wall, throw a dart, see what happens? I've, I've done that, actually. It's probably not the best method. How do we discern the place that God's called us to? There's two things I wanna share about that. The first way I think we can discern the place that God is asking us to live as sent ones in is just by providence. It's placed by providence. It's placed by the sovereignty of God. Here's what I mean. When when we lived in South Asia, uh, my wife and I came across just destitute poverty. I mean, just almost hard to process poverty, especially in the lives of children. There would be beggar children everywhere. And every time I would encounter this situation, you can't ignore it. I, I would start to think about the sovereignty of God. I'd begin to question the sovereignty of God. Meaning this, why is that little girl born into that situation? 
She didn't choose that. She didn't choose to be born poor, without family, living on the streets, begging. She didn't choose any of that. And, and I didn't choose my life either. I didn't choose to be born in America to a white, affluent family. None of that was by choice and none of her situation was by choice. So what does that mean for me? When I would conclude those meditations, it meant that in a large degree, where we are is out of our control. It's just dictated by the providence and the sovereignty of God. So what does it mean for us today? It means that your place is wherever you live. It's exactly where you find yourself right now. It's your neighborhood, your grocery store, your kid's school. That's your place. The question is, do you view yourself as a sent one to that place? It's, where, it's wherever you work. Your office park, your clients, your coworkers, that is your place by the sovereignty and providence of God. The question then is, am I engaging the call to this strenuous life in the place that I work? Finally, it's wherever you play your boating club, your golf club, the gym that you work out at, the restaurants that you tend to frequent, do you see yourself there by the providence of God so that you can engage in the strenuous life by living into the purpose of the strenuous life, which you're gonna get to in a second. Your place is providential. There's a lot of this that we are not in control of. It's wherever you live, it's wherever you work, it's wherever you play. But I gotta go here. It's also by surrender. Places by surrender. I, I believe that God can be sovereign. I believe that he is sovereign and providential over our place. But every now and then, I think it is our duty to lay our place on the table and say, God, I will go wherever you want me to go. Second Corinthians 5 says that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. Do you hear that? That means if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, bought by a price, your life is not your own. You don't get to dictate what you do with it. You're not the master, you are not, it's God, you are not in control. You are surrendered, living for him. I think that regards our place. God, where do you want me to live? When's the last time you asked that question? I would hope that we're not trying to avoid particular places because we're leaning into that life of ignoble ease instead of leaving, leaning into that strenuous life. I'll go wherever you want me to go. That's the question of place by surrender. Lord, where do you want me to go? Now, let me be clear. Bill said this last week. He said, that doesn't mean everybody's called to Africa. Some of you just went, thank you, Lord. Yeah. Some of you are not called to Africa or to the Middle East or to South Asia or Southeast Asia. That's not the calling for all, but it is for some. It is for some of you. Romans chapter 10 says, how are they? the nations, to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless somebody is sent to them? The call is to a particular place and we better be sure that we are not dictating that in avoidance of the strenuous life. So let me illustrate this and drive this home just a, a, a bit deeper. Say I invite you over to my house to help me move some old antique piece of furniture. Maybe it's an old rustic farm table, 100 years old. You come over to help because you're a good friend. You walk in my house and you see that I'm on one side of the table all by myself trying to lift this thing. But on the other side of this table, there are 30 men picking it up with ease. What's the thing that you're gonna do if you're really trying to help me lift that table? All right, you're gonna come over here, I would hope, or get out of my house because I don't need you, right? I would hope that you're gonna lift this table with me, but that discrepancy in labor is exactly what we find in world missions today. Let me share some statistics with you. 
96.3% of the world's unreached people groups reside in an area of the world that we call the 1040 window. You can Google the 1040 window. You can go to a website called joshuaproject.net and you can learn all you want about the 1040 window. It's 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude, stretching from Muslim North Africa all through the Middle East, through Hindu South Asia, all the way to Buddhist Southeast Asia. It's a part of the world that we've deemed the 1040 window. 96.3% of the world's unreached peoples lives there. It's 3.16 billion people. But here's what's staggering only 2.6 of the world's missionaries actually go there. What that means is for every 30 world missionaries we have today, only one goes to the 1040 window. Are we leaning into a life of ignoble ease instead of accepting the call to the strenuous life? I see in scripture a clear calling to join God in the reconciliation of all peoples for himself. So if we aren't going I can't help but to conclude it's because we're not listening or we're not responding. It's the life of ignoble ease. So the call to the strenuous life is to a person and it is to a place and it is for a purpose. Let's look at verse seven together. And proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First purpose we have in the call to the strenuous life is to proclaim to preach, to open up our mouths, to actually communicate a message. This is key because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. When, when we lived in a part of the world that was uh, in a pretty risky environment, there was a big lockdown. We were trying to, to bring our presence you know, to a minimum so that we wouldn't get found out as missionaries. Um, our, one of the missions agencies were advising a bunch of missionaries at that time um, the same advice that St. Francis of Assisi gave. And you may be familiar with the quote he has. It says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Right? Sounds pretty good, right? Unfortunately, it's unbiblical because our task is to actually proclaim the gospel. That doesn't mean to live in such a way that you contradict it. Yes, we need to preach the gospel with our actions, which we're gonna get to here in the, the next part of verse eight. But we have to proclaim we have to open up our mouths. Jesus will say later in verse 27, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Y'all, the Peace Corps can do good works. Boy Scouts can do good works. The Rotary Club can do good works. Anybody can do good works. The task of a Christian, of a disciple is proclamation. The purpose of the strenuous life is to open up our mouths and to proclaim. But to proclaim what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that John the Baptist announced. It's the same message that Jesus has been preaching. It's the message of the gospel. I know this is gonna be challenging, but this is not a message of economic, political, or societal philosophies. We cannot get sucked in as the church to think that an economic or political message will solve the problem of sin. Only the gospel will solve the rot of sin in our culture, in our society, but there's solution. The gospel is good news. It's good news. That may feel bad, right? Nobody ever told me I was a sinner and it made me feel good. It sounds bad, but it's only bad because there's some really good news and that's that Jesus paid the price for your sin and you didn't have to earn it. It's a gift. He gave it to you. We have to proclaim the gospel. And I love that, that in verse seven, he says, and proclaim as you go, right? What a, what a beautiful statement. 
just as you go, as you are going, as you're living, as you're working, as you're playing, as you're shopping, as you're coaching t-ball, as you're walking the dog, as you're going to the pool this summer, proclaim. Be attentive. View yourself as a sent one in that place and proclaim as you go. But the purpose is also um, to meet needs. We do need to meet needs. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. These are real, tangible needs. The people that Jesus is listing here, right? They're the, they're the dirty, the despised, the dying, the diseased. Those were real needs that his apostles are meeting as they're going out. So our purpose is not just to proclaim in you know, ignoring those needs, but to meet those needs as we're going. So are you meeting those needs? They could be physical, they could be emotional, they could be material, but, but don't, don't forget the spiritual need also, right? I think it's easy for us to meet some tangible material needs. Man, I, I can write a check and feel pretty good about myself. But as you're doing that, don't forget that you are also tasked with the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. So let's close out this section, the call to the strenuous life. We see that as we are called to a person, to a place, for a purpose, we're to make sure that we're not depending on ourselves. That we need to be trusting in Jesus. Let's look at the end of verse eight. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag, no tunics, sandals, staff. The laborer deserves his wages. I love that he starts off by saying, you received without paying, give without pay. You know what that means? Hey, don't charge anybody for this. Do you know how much money the disciples could have made for the power to raise the dead? That's a pretty interesting thought, right? I mean, think about the power that they had. He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't use it for that. Don't charge people. I mean, he can make some serious money. I mean, the, the supplement vitamin industry in America is a $1.5 billion industry. Don't get me started on essential oils, okay? 27 billion worldwide. Could you imagine, you know, the amount of money that you could make by raising people from the dead? More than Bezos charges to get to space. I guarantee it. But Jesus is saying that's not the point. You received without paying, give without pay. You have received this message and this power by grace. Give by grace. And they were commanded not to take money with them, bags, tunics, sandals, or in staff because they will be provided for. And what's beautiful about this is they're actually gonna be provided for by the harvest. As they are going, the people that they're going to are gonna meet their needs. That is a beautiful picture of a discipling relationship where you're meeting someone's need and they're meeting your needs in return, that's exactly the way God designed it. So depend on him to provide it. And then he says this really, this really interesting thing about as you enter a house, verse 12, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. What on earth is he talking about? It, it's, it's pretty simple. If you bring up Jesus, you start proclaiming, you start meeting some needs and someone seems interested, stay there, hang out there, don't move on to another relationship. Don't, don't move too quickly. Be in that relationship. Invest in that relationship. Invite them to coffee, to dinner, share the gospel with them, invite them into a Bible study. God's at work. Something is happening in that relationship. So don't be too quick to move on. That's, that's the point here. But then he concludes it by saying, but some won't receive you. Some aren't gonna welcome you. But when they do, don't take it personally. Just keep moving, keep engaging the call to the strenuous life is what Jesus says. Let's look in verse 16. The call to the strenuous life is, is not just to a person, to a place, and for a purpose. It's gonna come with some severe consequences. 
Verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. And I love this part. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? There's some serious consequences to the strenuous life. It's easy to think that just because we have accepted the call to Jesus and, and we're walking in the purpose of proclamation, it's easy for us to think that we're put, we're put our yes on the table, everything's gonna be easy. When we went to the mission field, do you know what we kept hearing? Well, the safest place for you to be is in the center of God's will. Anybody heard that before? Really? Like, how'd that work out for Jesus? How'd that work out for the apostles? How, how do you fit this passage into that framework? Because there are serious consequences to the strenuous life. We have convinced ourselves that if nothing is, isn't safe, it must not be of God. Safety and God don't walk hand in hand. Look at the consequences here. This teaching stands in stark contrast to the lies that we've believed about safety. So let's break up these consequences real quick. The first is in the category of animals. He begins by saying, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. He gives us some animals to consider. Now he talked about sheep in verse six too, when he says, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the sheep's ability to wander, to stray, to be lost. That's not what we're talking about here. This sheep is, is defenseless, unable to resist the pack of wolves. It's not a pretty picture. Without a shepherd, they have no way of getting out of this situation. You are sheep in the midst of wolves. That verb tense, in the midst of, that means already, like right now, not in the future, right now. You, you are sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not a pretty picture. So remember that animal. Know what to expect when you live as a called one, as a sent one. When you engage the strenuous life, know you're a sheep in the midst of wolves. But just because you're a sheep, you don't have to be stupid. I love that. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You don't have to be stupid. Picture here, Jesus boldly coming before Pilate, knowing that he's about to be condemned to death. But he utters not a word. Even while he's mocked and beaten and spit upon, he speaks with wisdom. The point here is he doesn't needlessly incite anger. Needlessly. They're angry. They're enraged, but he is not needlessly inciting anger. Can we just agree for a second that, that the greater world, that our culture, our society is opposed to the message of the gospel? Right? You see it on Facebook all the time, right? Just opposed, I mean, passionately opposed. What kills me though, and I know it's not all Christians, it's just the loudest Christians, is that instead of being wise as serpents, we retaliate. We strike like a snake instead of being wise like a snake. 
We don't need to be needlessly inciting trouble. When we are persecuted, we need to be shrewd. Another word that he uses here. We also need to be harmless or innocent as a dove. First Peter talks about this a good bit, 3.16. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't let them have anything against you. Live a pure life. Live with character. Live with integrity. It's like Jesus, again, when he was brought before Pilate, they had to find false testimonies in order to accuse him. They had nothing on him. They had to create lies in order to accuse him. And they will create lies about you. You will be mistreated. You will be misaligned. Just make sure they don't stick. Make sure it isn't real, that it's not true of you. Be innocent as a dove. So as you engage these consequences of the strenuous life, remember the animals. But then he gives us a couple of arenas too. There are three arenas that he labels here for us. The first is positions of authority. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts, flog you in the synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings. You're gonna be brought before positions of authority for Jesus' namesake. This is exactly, I mean, this came true for these 11. This is still happening all over the world. When we were missionaries in South Asia, we heard about this, this massive lockdown and, and arrest of foreign missionaries that happened in China at about the same time. And we were hearing from our partner agencies that as these missionaries were being arrested, interrogated, all of their stuff confiscated, that they were actually doing their purpose in the midst of that consequence. They were bearing witness of the gospel to their interrogators. And there were reports coming from interrogators actually putting their faith in Jesus through this. Because you don't need to be anxious because the Holy Spirit in that hour is going to speak through you for the name of Jesus, engaging our purpose even in the midst of these consequences. But I'll be honest, it gets worse. Positions of authority, that's nothing. Family, that's a whole different ballgame. Brother will deliver over brother to death. Father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. We'll see later in this chapter that a person's enemies in verse 36 will be those of his own household. There is no unit of life where we so long to be loved and accepted and understood, secure, like the nuclear family. But the strenuous life will lead to division there as well. I've spent 10 years training young missionaries, mobilizing, caring for them. Do you know who the most passionately opposed people are to missions? Parents, family, name-calling, guilt-tripping, gaslighting, all of it occurs. Jesus is saying, hey, don't be surprised. Beware, it's going to happen. Then he gives us a final arena, and I love this. He's like, hey guys, I'm getting tired, kind of tired of talking. Just everywhere, yeah. By all people, there's gonna be consequences by all people. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he says those endure to the end will be saved. Now, obviously, he's not literally saying all because he already said some will receive you, some will accept you, some will respond to the message, but he's saying you should expect it everywhere. There are consequences to the strenuous life. This is not a life of ignoble ease, but there's some real comfort for us. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. You get to fellowship with Jesus. You suffer for the sake of the gospel. You engage the consequences of the strenuous life. You just get to be like Jesus. 
Jesus says, if you wanna be like me, you're gonna face some consequences. So in conclusion of that point, if you wanna avoid being betrayed, hated, misunderstood, persecuted, don't be like Christ. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. So you're called to the strenuous life, but beware, it has consequences. Let's move on to the final point. I promise we're gonna get done. The courage required for the strenuous life. Verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. Verse 34, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to divide, to set a man against his father and a daughter, against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whew, let me take a breath. Three times, starting in verse 26, Jesus tells us to have courage. Have no fear of them. Do not fear those who kill the body. Fear not therefore. I think that is hysterical in light of what he just told us, right? He just laid out these vivid images of the consequences of following Jesus. You're a sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not a pretty picture. And then he says, hey, but don't worry. Don't have any fear of them. Are you kidding me? How? Like how on earth are we supposed to look at those consequences and move toward them with courage? I'm glad you asked. First way we can do that is courage from, not that, sorry, by understanding an eternal perspective, by possessing an eternal perspective. He says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You may feel alone, uncared for, unseen, mistreated, but one day it will all be exposed. Paul says it when he's an apostle saying, I am unknown, yet I'm fully known. One day you will be fully known. One day you will hear the voice of your father say, welcome. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hebrews 11 says that God is not ashamed to be called your God as you embrace the consequences of the strenuous life. The ultimate risk will bring the ultimate reward. It's, it's, it's eternal vindication. It's being seen and known and applauded in eternity. And then Jesus makes this really hysterical statement. He's like, hey, and let's be honest. What's the worst thing they can do to you, right? He just kind of slips this in there. What can they do, kill you? Paul would say to die is gain. Right? We can have courage because we have this eternal perspective. For me to die, that's gain. I can en- embrace this consequence with courage because this eternal perspective. So don't fear those that kill the body. Feel God. But it also comes from courage, understanding our value. Do you know how loved you are? 
Like we could just sit and think about the love of God for you personally. It will fill you with courage. As you meditate and reflect on how deep and how caring, how intimately known you are by God, it's more than the sparrows. I mean, they're just sold for a couple pennies, but when they fall, nothing happens to them apart from the Father's knowledge. Deep, intimate, personal care. How much more so for you? Knowing how, how loved you are and cared for by God you are, it brings courage. The righteous are as bold as lions. That's how we get our courage. So in verse 34, and I promise I'm coming to a close. Verse 34, he comes to this point where he's reminding us again, hey, you remember what I said about families? <laughs> but then he makes this, this deeply challenging statement. I mean, I can't tell you guys how many times I've wrestled with this question. It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Really? On Mother's Day? We gotta go there? Yeah, we do. It's a question of love. Whether we engage the strenuous life is a question of what we value the most. When we moved to the mission field, I was aware of the cost for myself, but hey, I like adventure. Let's do that. My kids, growing up without a yard, oh man, playing baseball because nobody on earth plays baseball other than Americans, not having grandparents near, being raised with their cousins. Really, the the childhood that I had as a child, I was gonna be robbing of my kids when we said yes. Every time we wrestled with that, and it would keep us from saying yes, came back to this passage, whoever loves father or mother more than me, whoever loves son or daughter more than me, it's not worthy of me. Then I go right back to that love of God and the value. God's also saying, don't you know I have their Their hair is numbered too. Don't you know you can entrust your children to me that I care for them more than you do? Then he says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever wants a present day life of ignoble ease, you can find that, but you're losing. Whoever engages the strenuous life, loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. The ultimate risk but we'll find the ultimate reward. We'll find life. It's worth it. Let me, let me close by bringing our attention to Stephen. Stephen, in the book of Acts, if you have your Bibles, you can turn me. I'm gonna put it on the screen. But in Acts chapter seven, we see that he was the first martyr apart from Christ. And this is the story of his death. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why do I bring this up? When we look at scripture and we see Jesus at the right hand of the father, what posture is he usually in? He's seated. He's sitting at the right hand of the father. But when Stephen is accepting the call to the strenuous life, engaged in the consequences, possessing the courage to look down those consequences, where do we find Jesus? Standing. That gives me, that gives me chills, standing. That's an ultimate reward to be seen by Christ in that moment, him standing, saying he's with me. He will find his life. There's a reward to this strenuous life. There's a reward for those that help you on your way. And that's how he concludes it. Even those that give you a water, a cup of water on your way, they're gonna get a reward too. So 
when we think about our response today, and we're gonna have a chance to respond in song also, there's, there's three things I wanna lead our attention to. The first is just to reflect and to evaluate on whether we are engaged in the strenuous life. Are you? Are you viewing yourself in your place as a sent one proclaiming and meeting needs there? Second thing is, is to consider that place. If you sense a stir to missions, we wanna know that. We, as, as your staff and, and pastors on this staff, we wanna know that. Call the church office, ask for Tom, ask for Whitney, ask for myself. We wanna engage a conversation with you because we wanna be able to walk with you through that process. But we also know not everyone is called to foreign missions. So for the rest of us, think about your place. Think about where you live, where you work, and where you play. Who are you proclaiming to? If you're not, would you this week? Who, who did you think of right when I said that, right? Would you proclaim to them this week? Would you meet a need for them this week and engage in the strenuous life that way? So let me pray for us and then we'll respond in song and then I'll, I'll come back and make a quick announcement about our, our church plant in Richmond Hill. Let me pray. Father, we love you so much. You are so worthy of your name. You are so worthy of our lives. You died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for you who died. Lord, protect us from any condemnation or guilt, but stir us with your Holy Spirit, with a new fire, with conviction to join you in the work of redeeming all peoples to yourself. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.